My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Dan Siciliano is co-founder and CEO of Nickel Inc., as well as the current chair of the Council of Federal Home Loan Banks. He's consulted with boards of Fortune 500 companies, including Google, Microsoft, FedEx, and Disney, and invested in and advised firms in Silicon Valley, Hong Kong, India, and Latin America. His teaching includes finance, governance, and venture capital, and he has testified in front of both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. From 2009 to 2011, alongside Ben Bernanke, Paul Krugman, and Carl Icahn, Dan was named to the Directorship 100, a list of the most influential people in corporate governance. He was co-founder, CEO, and executive chairman of Law Logics Group, a technology company named nine times to the Inc. 500 and ranked in the top 100 fastest-growing private companies in the U.S. In 2006, Dan co-founded the Stanford Rock Center and as associate dean at Stanford Law School, led that center until 2017. Dan is a first-generation Mexican-American, and he chairs the American Immigration Council. He's a board member at the Latino Corporate Director Education Foundation and is a policy expert and activist on issues of immigrant refugee rights, corporate and boardroom diversity, and related matters of economic development. I hope you enjoy learning from Dan Siciliano today, because I always do. Dan, it's so great to catch up with you today. I took your venture capital class at Stanford, but the last time we spoke, I was in Las Vegas for an internship, and I completed my oral exam with you on Skype. Now, that might not seem that uncommon today because we're living in a different world, But back then, in 2013, I really appreciated your flexibility, so it's great to connect again today. That's fantastic. I had forgotten about that until you just mentioned that. That We were cutting edge, even then, very standard. Yes, yes, 10 years ago. I do remember going to, uh, who's the the dean of Kathy Glaze? So I asked Kathy, I was like, you know, I got this internship in Vegas, and my wife is pregnant, and if we don't move there now, then... We might be separated during the birth. And she's like, oh, yeah, we'll just, yeah, we'll just have you take your exams in Vegas. We can get some proctors. We can do some over, you know, Skype. So I, I appreciate her and I appreciate you. I love it. That's great. Well, Dan, you've had an incredible career as an academic, as, uh, well, you didn't plan to be an academic, but uh, you are an entrepreneur and an academic. And as you think back on all of the lessons you've learned, are there two to three that you would most like to pass on to others? Yeah, it uh, it was it was hard to narrow it down to two to three, but then once I realized I really got to own it more than just attributing it to someone else, I better, <laughs> it came, became a shorter list. And what's funny for me is none of this will come as a surprise to you. I realize I'm a very consistent creature. It's the same stuff I probably embedded in the VC venture capital class that we taught. And uh, we were just chatting and the fact that you know, you had to take the overconfidence uh, uh, quiz as a part of that class uh, is as a part and parcel with this. So, you know, one important lesson I've learned is that if you can imagine that you might be wrong in any given moment, in any given interaction, for any given business problem or creative opportunity, it really helps a lot. And what I mean by that is um, it's related closely to an area that you're both familiar with and an expert in, um, which is overconfidence kind of writ large. I mean, humans are generally overconfident and that's not a bad thing. It can be a good thing in certain circumstances, but it can also lead you very much astray. And so um, I like to point out to people, especially in today's environment where we're more sensitive to human capital issues, um, DEI, ESG, that being overconfident actually reduces empathy. It decreases creativity. It leads to you know all sorts of stress and problems because 
you imagine that what you're thinking or what you're about to do is probably or almost certainly or definitely right. And so I just like to say, hey, imagine that you might be wrong for a moment as a creative experiment. And what would you do differently? And so, you know, as simple as if you're having an, and we, I think we both have four kids. Is that, I think that's right. Yeah. So I have my, my, my second youngest is three and a half and three and a half year olds are very opinionated. And it's easy just to realize that they've got to be wrong and you've got to be right. Like, I mean, for goodness <laughs> sakes, I'm the adult, they're the tiny little kid. But it actually helps to pause for a moment and say, okay, let's imagine that his insistence for whatever it is, is like, no, I should not go to bed now. That's just you know, 99.99% chance, right, that he should and he's wrong that he shouldn't. But let's just pause for a moment and let me imagine that I'm wrong. And, and what would that do? Like, And at the very least, it kind of flips your empathy switch on and you're like, okay, he is as certain he's right as I am. Right? So I should at least feel for that a little bit. Right. So, so I like this idea of imagine that you might be wrong. And, you know, the, the places where it shows up the most are in kind of typical um, overconfident scenarios. So what I like to say to people and what I've learned myself is that, you know, all roads, no matter how successfully you've been driving on them or for how long, eventually curve. Right. And, and even if slowly, and some of them take a sudden left turn, right? And if you've not read any of these really fascinating articles about missing people in certain stretches of road where there's, you know, 82 miles of relatively straight road in a desolate place, and then it has a sharp left turn, but there's a pond on where if you didn't turn, you land in the pond. Like, you know, they're, they're periodically, you'll read these stories where they discover, you know, tragically, you know, many cars in that pond and they solve lots of missing person cases. Because if you drive for 80 some miles in a straight line, it is very hard all of a sudden to decide to notice that you need to turn left. Wow. So I, I think, you know, imagine that you might be wrong. The idea of following the same road is uh, is is that same problem. And we have great examples of it all over the place. My world is a lot, filled with a lot of finance examples. They're also good examples because you can kind of quantify them. Like even, you know, great people like um, Bill Miller, who was uh, Lake Mason uh, Value Trust. He was a fantastic investor. He was a mutual fund. Um, I think he beat the S&P. 500 index, which was his comparative index for 15 years in a row from like 1991 to whatever that would be 2005, I guess. And, um, and then he didn't. And then, you know, he, I think he left in 2016, maybe from Lake Mason. And by that time, his, you know, returns were average with the S&P 500. And, you know, there's a there's a lesson in that one is, you know, a lot of things kind of regress to the mean. And another is that, you know, just because something worked for a long time doesn't mean it will always work. Uh, and so just to imagine that you might be wrong is helpful, though I will say, and I'll pause because I'm, I'm curious of your, your reaction to this. I will also say it can be exhausting, right? So yeah. so you, you have to use it carefully because if you imagine you, you could end up with imposter syndrome all the time. I mean, if you, if you imagine that you might be wrong all the time, um, not only is it exhausting, but it can create all sorts of execution problems. Like then you hesitate to do things. And so I'm not saying this is a lifestyle so much as it is a technique at the moment of, uh, you know, critical junctures, uh, especially in things that you're really, really good at, I would suggest, which is a little, little bit divergent from some of the most recent overconfidence literature. There's a lot of overconfidence work that says, listen, if you're new at something, need to take more time, need to plan more carefully, because that's when you're super vulnerable to thinking, I can do this, I'm above average. I, I don't disagree with that, but I think the places where you get radical damage from overconfidence and not imagining that you could be wrong 
is at the peak of your career, at the peak of your performance, at the peak of your importance, right? Where it's like, you're the one who gets to decide because all hundred decisions in the last hundred quarters that you pulled off had been right. And so of course you're the one to make this decision today. And it's probably a really big one, right? And the risk is what if it's, you know, a hundred feet from the sharp left turn where yeah. the pond is on the other side, right? Like, and, and so it's at those moments where I think the, you know, imagine that you could be wrong becomes very important. And I work in banking these days. So I actually, I actually think about this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so intrigued by this and I, I, I am going to start doing this more. And, and you did teach me this. And, and I feel like it has impacted my life. Well, one, I used some of the overconfidence exercises from your class still today in my classes. Uh, but two, I was thinking about, okay, uh, I want to do this more. I, th I think I do it a lot already. And I think it's probably because you taught me this technique. Um, I was thinking of it in terms of religion. You know, you can imagine, you know, yeah, it, it, we can see the consequences of overconfidence in in business, finance, you know, any industry. Um, the people who are so certain without a doubt, and there's no possibility that they're wrong about their belief in God or their belief in no God on either extreme, it can be really difficult to connect with people who can't even imagine a scenario where they might possibly be wrong. Uh, but we can't do that too much, right? Because if we're constantly all day long questioning yeah. every little thing we do so there's You'll like this balance yeah no that's it. well so it's it's interesting that you raise that i think you know my last 10 years after being pretty confident that overconfidence was a big problem has been <laughs> almost an experimental laboratory in boards that i work with or that i'm on or some combination trying to solve that because boards of directors are kind of a you know a hotbed of overconfidence most of the time to the good but a lot of the time with some risks and and I what I mean by that is you got former and current CEOs in high powered high authority you know high respect positions it's kind of a big and they tend to be wealthy we know that if you're well educated you're smart and you're wealthy and successful and we're a senior executive those are like the yeah. <laughs> leading indicators of overconfidence <laughs> and again it's not a bad thing per se but so boardrooms are just filled with that. And so I've tried to come up with ways in which you can soften the blow around this, you know, idea of being so certain. And one of the, the religion example is a good one where you can't say, well, you know, you should really think about whether or not you're right or wrong. You might be wrong. And I'll think about if I'm wrong too, right? That doesn't go over well in that kind of discussion. But what you can often say is, you know what? I bet neither of us is exactly right. Um, right, which which is a subtle shift, but it's it's so much more palatable from an ego viewpoint. No one, well, I shouldn't say no one. There's some Silicon Valley icons, maybe who would who would probably say this, but few people will say I am exactly right <laughs> all the time. Right, like it, it's just not a reasonable thing to say as one human to another. So even in a very fraught discussion around politics, religion, those hard things where you have these entrenched views, you can, in my opinion, and you find this in boardrooms on like difficult topics. You can soften it and chip away at that kind of like ossification that locks people in by saying, well, you know what, let's let's maybe agree that neither of us is exactly right. Right. This is highly unlikely. Right. And and people will say, eh, that, that, that's fair. I'm not conceding anything, but OK, right. you're right. right. It's unlikely I'm exactly right, but you're not exactly right. either. And, and you can go from there. So I, I like that technique. And then another technique, you know, is. I, to just tell people that you're willing to change your mind, right? And, and if it's genuine, it, I think it works quite well. I think of myself as an evidence-based person, but what I found is I'm, 
an intuition, emotion-based person who's willing to correct later. Right? So, so like, like I, I do, I'm like, I'm very analytical, but you know, 20 seconds into something, I'll have an opinion and it'll be oddly strongly felt. And then if I reflect on it, I'm like, do I really, does this deserve the strong feelings I have? And, and the only thing I can do about it is be open <laughs> to like, you know, the idea of changing your mind, which then you got to kind of own. I, I do worry about the current environment where sometimes we seem to punish people for changing their mind or for yeah. their positions. And, you know, I, I get that a little bit, but I worry that that's not the, you, you don't want to say you get one time to decide your position and then that's it. You know, if you ever change your mind, you're wishy-washy. Anyway, I don't know if that helps, but it feels like it helps when I do stuff. Well, I've had that experience where I, I will feel so strongly about something and it'll take, you know, some nudging and some debate. And then I change my mind. It's like, why did I hold so strongly to that? You know, in, in a paper, I'm writing a paper, you know, about that word or about that concept or about, you know, this theoretical construct. And, and so I, I think we're all prone to it. And um, that was the what, my very first academic publication was on this question of, you know, does overconfidence actually exist or is it a laboratory artifact? And yeah, our, our conclusion was, yeah, it exists. And especially in those boardrooms where you've had the selection tournament where the, you know, the cream has risen to the crop a lot of times because they are great performers. But it can be really hard to recognize when sometimes, you know, things just lucked out and, and we were the beneficiaries of some things that just went our way. So that's my favorite experiment um, that was only preliminarily set up. And actually, I just looked it up to see if we'd ever if University of Arizona and Vernon Smith, who went on to win the Nobel Prize in economics for the much better renamed behavioral economics, as opposed to what we called it then, experimental economics. And it looks like this experiment never reached a final stage and was conducted and written about but it was one of my favorite ones. And I left um, only after we kind of set it up and prototyped it. And basically we would gather lots and lots of people and on their on an honor system at first, they would take a coin that we gave them was a quarter, US quarter, and they'd flip it. And they were supposed to, in their heads, set whether it would show up heads or tails. And if they got it right, they remained standing. If they were wrong, they sat down and we handed them like five bucks and then they left the room. And then when you got down to, you know, just a, a smaller number of people at, you know, the five or six sequential guessing it right point, then we had a bunch of TAs and research assistants, you know, have them write down what it was and then they'd flip it and they'd verify it so it was more valid. And the whole point of the experiment, again, we never really took it to fruition, but it was evident even from this preliminary work. The whole point of the experiment was to see if people's view of the, you know, their ability to call the coin flip changed as they were. And let's be clear about this. Coin flips are serially uncorrelated. And as far as we know, your ability to figure it out is random, right? So so you might be wrong, but as far as we I, know, I, I'm open to the possibility that I'm wrong on that basic <laughs> premise, but I'm feeling pretty confident about it. Right. But people really change their attitude. And the way we test it is we would give them a choice of doing it again, right? So thinking they'll get it right again or giving them money that on a pretty quick math basis, that it's better to take the money because the random probability of getting it right and getting more money later was lower than the current money we'd give you. So, so we were basically incentivizing people if they were thinking rationally, air quotes, um, they would take the money and sit down and be like, thank you for the money. But if they thought somehow they had a special momentary hot hand or power, they would keep flipping. Most people kept flipping. So th this, what this taught me at the age of 21 was, wow, be careful of the power of sequential success because every time you're successful, whether merit or luck or both, and we know it's both most of the time, and sometimes it's just luck, 
you then have this feeling that the next time you do whatever it is you're going to do will turn out great. And hence is born like the extra energized version of overconfidence where you need to pause and say, hmm, let me imagine for a moment if I'm wrong, what are the consequences? What should I do or what shouldn't I do? So I just love that experiment, which apparently never came to like publishable fruition. But uh, Mark Twain nailed it, you know, when he said, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quite getting it right, is it's, it's not the things I don't know that gets me into trouble. It's the things I know for sure that just ain't so, right? And uh, I actually have that. On my, I have my paraphrased version on my monitor right there because, yeah, the biggest mistakes I've made are when I was so sure I already knew something. When I don't know anything, I, I, I ask questions and I tend not to make as many mistakes because I won't make decisions. But when I'm sure I know something, boy, that's when I make the bigger mistakes. Anyway. This has been fascinating to me for a number of reasons. One, like I said, the very first publication I had was on overconfidence. And love- the, the very second publication I had was on overconfidence. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Dan, where you've become a certain way, you think a certain thing, and then you like either see a TV show or you read a book, you re reread a book, and you're exposed to this way of thinking, and you're like, oh my gosh. This is why I think the way I do is because of this thing I read 20 years ago and I had forgotten I had learned it from this place. So I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but I loved your class when I was taking it. And I remember the overconfidence, uh, some of the simulations we did that I still use in my class today. But so much of my thinking about overconfidence, I think... I'm realizing I can attribute to you and I had forgotten how much you had impacted me. And when I start doing my PhD and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm researching overconfidence, I'm very interested in overconfidence. And I, I think I had failed to appreciate how much your class and your teachings had impacted me because, you know, seeing your face and hearing your voice and hearing you talk about these things again, it's like, oh yeah, we did spend a lot of time on overconfidence in that class. Well, that's the the kindest and most inspiring thing you can say to an educator. So gosh, Thank you. No, I, I, I'm so happy that's the case, that you've run with it and are spreading uh, even more interesting and uh, fun ideas to others. That's that's great news. I love well, it. And, and I love these, you know, these interventions or these fixes, you know, maybe both of us aren't exactly right or, you know, I might be wrong. So anyway, I love these. I am going to, um, I haven't used those phrases in when I teach overconfidence. I'm going to start uh, using those more, I'm going to think about them. I'm going to share them with my wife and my children. And like I said, my students. So uh, this has just been so much fun for me to reconnect with you and learn new things about overconfidence from you. Um, I, I could listen to you for hours. And, and luckily, I, I did get to listen to you for hours. <laughs> um, but I just, again, want to, want to say thanks so much and have just really enjoyed chatting with you today. Well, it was a great pleasure. Uh, I'm glad for the opportunity to talk and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. Let's make it uh, less than a 10-year gap. (laughs) Great. I'd love to. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nickels and Dimes. I love the lessons Dan shared today about overconfidence. First, imagine that you might be wrong. We're prone to be overconfident, which can reduce empathy, decrease creativity, and increase stress. I love how Dan applies this lesson, both when dealing with his children, even if they are almost certainly wrong, and with business executives. At the very least, imagining we might be wrong helps us feel empathy. And just because we've been right about something in the past doesn't mean we'll be right in the future because all roads, no matter how long, eventually curve. Second, I love Dan's techniques for dealing with potential overconfidence. Saying things like, I bet neither of us is exactly right, or I'm willing to change my mind, will likely be received much better than telling someone they're wrong. In the words of Mark Twain, 
It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. Nate Nickel here with three requests and one suggestion. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Third, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. And now a suggestion. If you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that each previous guest has shared. Thanks for your support.